President Trump nominated Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court this week. As we'll get into later in this episode, this is overall a great pick, but liberty-minded Americans dodged a bullet in Thomas Hardiman. Now, remember, this is all relative. Of course, almost any Trump pick would have been better than one from Clinton, especially since the Clinton pick likely would have still been Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland's Harvard Law classmate, Randy Barnett, did a great interview on why Garland would have essentially been a rubber stamp for the regulatory bureaucracy. But Hardiman has some seriously concerning stances for libertarians and liberty conservatives. And with three Supreme Court justices in their 80s, and a good chance that Trump will be nominating someone again for the court before his term is up, Hardiman has got to be opposed if he comes up again. Let's look at some of the red flags about Hardiman. A big one is his decision in Florence v. Board of Chosen Freeholders, where he wrote that citizens who were arrested, no matter what the crime was, could be strip-searched regardless of whether there is a reasonable suspicion of the arrestee having any illicit possessions. Of course, if you care about privacy rights, this is a concern. The lack of a requirement of a reasonable suspicion, and the fact that this can be done for someone arrested of any crime, represents a concerning disregard for the Fourth Amendment. He also wrote an opinion in Eastern Area School District, VBH, that stated that students could be banned from wearing I Heart Boobies bracelets as part of a breast cancer awareness campaign. Though Hardiman did make vague references to the case falling in a, quote, gray area, a case in which students are making a clear social-slash-political statement, not just some inane sexual reference to their love of breasts, is well outside a gray area. It is protected speech. He also supported a ban on non-commercial advertisements at an airport, saying that it was in order to create a comfortable environment and avoid controversy at the airport. I don't know about you, but I'm doing alright without my airports being converted into safe spaces. I have some other issues with Hardiman as well, but they come down more to my personal convictions than fact-based issues. He is generally ruled in favor of the state when it comes to death penalty issues, but of course, if you support the death penalty, that might be a positive for you rather than a negative. Similarly, I consider bringing the Bible to a kindergarten class and reading from it to be a violation of the First Amendment, but you may not. Hardiman would agree with you in that case. Again, I mean this not to suggest that Hardiman is just awful. He's certainly not. I appreciate his position on the Second Amendment, and he is as good as Gorsuch is on Chevron deference, which we'll get into later in this episode. But let's not settle for better than Merrick Garland. Next time around, let's make sure Trump isn't tempted to appoint Thomas Hardiman. You're listening to Liberties and Policies, because you can have both. Maintenance of a free society is a very difficult and complicated thing. What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. But power must be restrained because no one knows who will next hold that power. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Hello and welcome to bonus episode 3.5, Neil Gorsuch edition. Originally, we were planning on doing an episode on immigration this week, but the nomination of Neil Gorsuch changed that. Both immigration and the Supreme Court nomination are very important topics, and Andy and I didn't want to shortchange either one, so we're going to do a mini-episode on the Neil Gorsuch nomination this week, 
And then next week, we'll be back to tackle the immigration issue and Trump's recent executive orders on it. So I want to welcome back uh, Andy to the show. Thank you for coming back. Thanks for having me once again. Yeah. All right. So let's start off with the politics of the Neil Gorsuch nomination. Let's just get this out of the way. Garland was nominated so that Democrats could point to a quote-unquote moderate and make Republicans seem ridiculous for refusing to, to consider him. Most of the outrage about Republicans stonewalling Garland before the election, you'll notice, was mostly political theater. They were just so confident that Clinton would win that they did not push that hard to get him confirmed. They thought that they could nominate a more liberal justice after Clinton won. Republicans, meanwhile, played pure partisan politics throughout this whole thing and haven't really tried that hard to deny it. So let's just accept that both sides are cynically political and neither owns the moral high ground. But there seems to be a lot of talk about retaliation for Garland, right? Uh, that a lot of Dems are looking to shoot down Gorsuch because the Republicans failed or chose not to respond on Garland. But even for the Dems, I think there's a couple of reasons why they shouldn't be so quick to retaliate on Gorsuch. I mean, even though their ideas are different from us, right? There's there's plenty of reason for them not to not to be so quick to to shoot down this nomination. And first of all, is the possibility of a worse nomination. I mean, right. we spent a good chunk of time talking about uh, Thomas Hardiman, right? Yeah. Um, but there's also going to be the likelihood of other retiring justices, right? And the Dems should be really looking to save that political capital for the future, right? So they look like the, the, the side with the moral high ground this time around. So when they actually attack a future justice, right, it seems a little bit more sensible. Right. I mean, I, I think you can just... What what is the end game in a in a full blown retaliation against what the Republicans did to Garland? I mean, do you block? Do you do you stay with eight justices for four years? And if Trump somehow gets reelected or another Republican does, do you do you do it another four years and then and then on forever? I mean, there, there's really no no logical end game to to doing what the Republicans did to Garland back, right? But I think even beyond that, right, we can look at. Uh, the fact that Gorsuch might actually be a good limit on the power of the federal government. Yeah. With the way that the courts uh, the court is uh, split right now, right, there's not really much that can go through Supreme Court decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the Democrats should keep in mind that this nomination is currently under a Trump administration, right? So one of the big things about Gorsuch is his willingness to limit uh, the, the federal government, as we'll later talk about. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of incentive, actually, for liberals to nominate a guy who puts some check on the federal government. I mean, for the first time in ages, we have liberals talking about controlling the size of the government. <laughs> and I think they should take advantage of, of Gorsuch as a, as a way to, to, to demonstrate how willing they are to, to limit the power of Trump. Especially if your home state tries to secede, California. Indeed, indeed. Um, although, you know, te Texas raised here. Uh, but regardless... Or Texas, I mean. I mean yeah, true. Uh, but regardless, I mean, Neil Gorsuch is a relatively young judge, so there's still a lot of stances and many issues that are still currently undetermined. But from what we know, he seems really promising. He's very, very similar to Scalia, at least, from what a lot of people have seen from his decisions. So what we're going to be doing is going into the, the good the debatable, and then the bad about Gorsuch. Right, so let's get started with the good. Um, this is undeniably good about about Gorsuch. Um, so this is 
funnily enough, after us tooting, um, tooting Gorsuch's horn about his similarities to Scalia, we're actually going to start with one of the issues that he differs from Scalia on, uh, which is his stance on Chevron deference. But different is not a bad thing. In fact, Gorsuch is likely to be an improvement on Scalia here and limit the government's power even more. So Andy, why don't you tell us about what Chevron deference is? Well, Chevron deference comes from the Supreme Court case of Chevron versus Natural Resource Defense Council. It's a big jumble of words. But basically, the the decision uh, of uh, Chevron created this this test called Chevron deference. And basically, the decision um, you know, either greatly impacted administrative law or just formally stated what was already being done anyway, depending on who you ask, right? <laughs> Um, the decision requires that courts uh, defer to the interpretations of statutes made by the agencies enforcing them, unless the interpretations are unreasonable, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> so this concept of Chevron deference has allowed agencies to enforce the laws written by Congress in a, well, creative manner. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, Chevron deference is at the heart of the unholy alliance in which Congress writes vague laws so that it doesn't have to be held responsible for the consequences, and regulators interpret the laws they, however they feel like interpreting them, and courts defer to the regulators' decisions. So right, so let's let's talk a bit about what we think is the biggest problem here. Is do you think the biggest problem is uh, the first part where the courts write or Congress writes these vague laws uh, so that it doesn't have to be held responsible for the consequences, or do we think that the problem is the courts deferring to the regulators' decisions? Because I think we can both agree that the problem is not going to be solved by regulators voluntarily giving up this power that they have given themselves. I think there's a little bit of both, right? Yeah. Um, with this kind of concept of Chevron deference, there's a lot of uh, there's there's a lot of willing uh, you know, willing action from Congress to give up their own power uh, in order to take reduced responsibility, mm-hmm. right? But this is in general really bad for the American public because it means that they have very little accountability over what is actually getting passed as law, right? So, I mean, it is one thing to address the Chevron deference situation in the, in the courts where the courts are, you know, willing uh, have to defer to what the, the um, regulatory agencies do. But I think there is fair room to say that Congress should be stepping up and um, you know, writing clearer laws as well. Right. I think I think we tend to focus on the congressional side of it because that's something that, you know, we as American voters have more influence over. But um, I guess it's exciting that now we actually have someone who's going to take it from the other end, you know, so that we, we don't have to uh, keep carrying the load of trying to get uh, legislators to work against their best interests in a way. <laughs> And I mean, keep in mind that this this is something that's been around for a while. I mean, Chevron deference has basically been one of the biggest concepts that's led to the growth of the regulatory state. Mm-hmm. And even Scalia, you know, as as you know, conservative as he is, didn't really take an active stance on on opposing Chevron deference. So this is right. a real opportunity here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. Furthermore, for for you know the liberal the liberals in Congress, you know why should they like this concept of limiting Chevron deference? Well, they have to look at this from the perspective of a Trump administration, right? I mean, Gorsuch's willingness to limit Chevron deference will likely prevent President Trump from running away with unconstitutional policies done through administrative agencies. Right, which is a bit ironic because, as I mentioned before, Merrick Garland would essentially be a rubber stamp for a Trump administration or any administration. So it's kind of funny that, you know, liberals might actually be getting something good out of this um, by not having it be Garland and having it be Gorsuch instead. Right. 
Uh, but yeah, let's let's go ahead and move on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so as as a boon to pretty much everyone concerned about overcriminalization, this is both left and right. Gorsuch has generally been a pretty good vote. And while we did say that we didn't want to portray Gorsuch as just better than Merrick Garland, um, you know, which we just did a second ago, um, you know, this is one area where he does stand out in a positive way to both liberals and liberty-minded conservatives, right? Right. I mean, overcriminalization being the idea that there are too many criminal laws and that everything is becoming criminalized and that there are so many criminal laws that we don't even know how many there are. So, I mean, there is an aspect of this that ties in from the the Chevron deference uh, thing as well, because a lot of these new criminal laws are coming in through the regulatory right. state. Yeah. But I mean, as a critic of overcriminalization in general, like Gorsuch recommends that criminal law should be interpreted narrowly. Right. And that's a really welcome deviation from Trump's you know, so-called law and order policing, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, let's let's have a little discussion about this, though. I mean, we've we've heard a, uh, a bit recently about um, you know Trump's efforts to to try to you know, expand um, expand the power of the police, right? The efforts to try to criminalize protesters in in my alma mater, uh, UC Berkeley, <laughs> um, right? Uh, so, you know, what do you what do you think? What do you think this kind of uh, Gorsuch, what do you think the Gorsuch nomination would offer to um, to the people who are trying to you know fight back against the the uh, police powers of the state, so to speak? Right. So hopefully this would mean that Gorsuch would fall down more on the side of uh, freedom of speech and you know the rights of protesters than um, than police powers when it comes to these these sort of protests and. Um, the right for people to to say what they think no matter what they're saying i mean obviously this is an area that gorsuch hasn't really uh ruled too much in but mm-hmm. you know as we said about the overcriminalization, there's a little bit of hope there right yeah um so moving on gorsuch like scalia is also a strong believer in mens rea requirements for criminal conduct right um, this means that the government, in order to put someone away for a crime, has to not only prove that the person committed the crime, but also that they had the intent to do so. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, l- let me let me just jump in here and say that I think this is an especially big deal. I think one of the fundamental reasons that we generally accept the legitimacy of laws, meaning that, for example, if you get a speeding ticket, you might be annoyed and you might consider the ticket to be dumb, but you accept that you have to pay the ticket because the ticket is a legitimate exercise of government force. So we generally accept the legitimacy of laws because there is some reasonable expectation that we would be aware that the law exists before violating it. So with the speeding ticket example, there are signs all along the highway showing you the speed limit. When you go over the speed limit, you know that you did something wrong. And, I mean, there's a common adage amongst um, you know, the legal community that you know, ignorance of the law is no excuse. But with how big the, the legal code has gotten and how big the criminal code has gotten, it's very difficult for people to understand the law, right? Even if you read through the whole Federal Register section on the on criminal law right, and criminal conduct, there's not, it, it doesn't exactly cover everything you can be sent to jail for. Right. right. And even even with that adage, I mean, they're kind of saying it for things that you you would still know were probably illegal. I mean, even if you rob a store and you weren't aware that that it was illegal to rob that store, it's still pretty common knowledge that you can't just rob a store. But here are some examples of people punished without a mens rea requirement that I think we can kind of agree that, you know, this isn't something you should just know. Like, a man who was sentenced to six years in federal prison for packing lobsters in plastic instead of cardboard, 
Um, a young girl fined $535 and threatened with jail time for rescuing an injured woodpecker. And a Texas man imprisoned for two years for a paperwork violation and buying and selling legal orchids when the government thought they were endangered orchids. Uh, and this sort of thing can happen to absolutely anyone. So some estimates have the average American unknowingly committing three felonies a day. And that's not even counting the number of misdemeanors or state and, state and local law violations people uh, violate per day, uh, which is impossible to know since as I said before, quite literally, no one even knows exactly how many there are. So without justices standing up for a mens rea requirement, the legitimacy of the justice system is undermined by unjust punishment of people who could not even be reasonably expected to know they were violating a law. And I mean, for any you know Dems who might be listening to this, uh, however rare you might be, <laughs> right? Um, uh, you know, there recently was you know, legislation that did try to did try to go through Congress um, with talking about mens rea reform, right? Which a couple of Dems sh- tried to shoot down because of uh, of white collar crime, right? And you know, it's understandable, right? In order to catch white collar crime, like you know, sometimes sometimes there has to be. Uh, it's sometimes having a mens rea requirement makes it difficult, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but at the same time, think about all the people who, uh, as previously mentioned by Andrew, who who have been you know, sentenced to, to jail or fined for things that they had no idea was criminal conduct, right? Um, you know, well, I, I think, you know, we can go back to another old legal adage. It's better to let 10, 10 uh, guilty men go free than to, to um, you know, imprison an innocent man right mm-hmm. um and i think you know that that really mental that mentality should really symbolize what you know, american criminal justice system should be about is really finding the people that are actually guilty right so a, a common counter argument to this is is often made by environmental advocates because a lot of these over criminalization laws are tied to things like in, endangered species lists like like the girl with a woodpecker which i mentioned earlier that was an endangered woodpecker apparently um but oftentimes these laws, they're, they're written in such a way that it's almost impossible to really know what is an endangered species. Like the, the specifications of what makes it endangered versus what doesn't is not something that the average person can figure out, even if they were looking at that list of endangered species at the time that the woodpecker, they saw the injured woodpecker on the ground. So I think that, well, there is a, there is a benefit to environmental protection and um, endangered species protection. You know, it has to be done in a way where we're doing it without punishing people for things that they couldn't know they were doing. Right. So that pretty much covers it for at least the things that are undeniably good about Neil Gorsuch. We're going to be moving on to the more debatable aspects <laughs> of his uh, jurisprudence, um, starting with his stance on religion, right? Gorsuch stance on religion uh, and religious liberties is particularly strong, which could be reassuring and concerning at the same time, (sighs) right? Uh, I mean, let's start with what's undeniably good as well. He seems to be pretty straightforward with defending religious liberties over the power of government compulsion, right? Um, So in the Hobby Lobby case and the Little Sisters of the Poor case, um, these are really good examples uh, where Gorsuch defended religious liberties over the the uh power of the government to compel these people to pay for um your contraception and things that they they didn't believe in Mm -hmm. right um and while most religious liberty cases gorsuch has dealt with are around christianity gorsuch has ruled favorably towards other religions as well uh he ruled that a native american prisoner should get access to a sweat lodge and yellow bear versus lampart so it's not unreasonable to say that you know he might rule in the same way for other religions aside from christianity Mm -hmm. 
right and i don't want to get too much into the territory of the next podcast episode but this could be particularly effective against you know trump's muslim travel ban right um you know given that the trump administration has taken a strong stance against islam in general gorsuch could actually help keep the trump administration in check and counteract trump's crusade right so there's a there's a boon there's another good thing that democrats might like um which would be ironic because most democrats usually aren't aren't uh huge fans of religious liberty but so let's let's go on to some of the more debatable parts of this, um, which revolves around Gorsuch's views towards public displays of religion. Um, Gorsuch's opinion towards the Establishment Clause is more pro-religion. Uh, for secular people or people who believe that the First Amendment's Establishment Clause does not give the government the power to favor one religion over another in public displays, this could be quite concerning. And I mean, this may be uncomfortable for many, like me included, right? Um, but keep in mind, Scalia would have voted the same way, right? Uh, meaning <laughs> yeah. there's little change to the, the court composition, right? Um, you know, furthermore, while religious symbols in public areas favoring one faith over another may be you know, distaste, distasteful and uncomfortable to those of unfavored faiths, right? At the end of the day, these symbols are of little tangible impact to people's lives, right? Um, you know, when we were talking about Chevron deference, right, and over-criminalization, we were talking about, you know, people being sent to jail for years, right? And this is like, you walk through the park and you see the Ten Commandments and you feel a little bit uncomfortable about it <laughs> and alienated, but it has no huge tangible impact on your life. Yeah, and when we're talking about, you know, the things that the Establishment Clause were created to defend against you know, this isn't really the the big things that the ta- the establishment clause was created to defend against right right but i mean i still think it's it's maybe concerning right, right, to people yeah. and and it, it could make people uncomfortable but if we're listing it on kind of the pros and cons of gorsuch right this mm-hmm. is certainly probably the least significant by a large degree yeah, right? yeah um it's not by itself a reason to shoot down gorsuch as a as a nominee mm-hmm um, but uh, let's go ahead and move on to the 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 next um, and more concerning issue to some people: his kind of stance on life, uh, you know, assisted suicide, and potentially abortion. Right. So, while Gorsuch has made no official court rulings on abortion, he did write a whole book on assisted suicide, and this seems to to provide some insight into his stance on life in general. In this book, he seems to argue that that life should not be valued based on the capacity or abilities of the life which is a common disability rights argument against assisted suicide. However, if this is extended into his views on abortion, then it would seem to indicate that he would reject the legal status quo that determines the legality of abortion largely based on the trimester that the mother is in and the viability of the fetus, or ability to survive outside the womb. So, of course, liberty-minded people tend to be very divided on issues like assisted suicide and abortion. I mean, even just the two of us are dis- are divided on abortion. Right. Uh, so we won't present this to you as an obviously good or obviously bad thing. So uh, just make of it what you will. So let's get into some of the bad things. So, right. Um, so some of the bad things we're going to go ahead and start on the death, his stance on the death penalty, right? Mm-hmm. So despite us just talking about Gorsuch's stance on life, he has historically been a bad vote on death penalty cases. And this is very similar to Scalia, but he de- derives this from his textualist background. Right. I mean, Gorsuch stated in his book that he is always opposed to the taking of life by, quote, private persons, unquote, which implies, and well, he says it explicitly later, but it implies that he has no such opposition to the taking of life by the government. Um, but, you know, this kind of comes with the territory for conservative judges, right? Right. Um, and... 
since the Constitution itself says very little about death penalty, Gorsuch derives this reading from the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, or the AEDPA, which was uh, passed in the 90s, and it made it easier for death penalties to be carried out, right? There is hope on this ground for people who are sympathetic to death penalty habeas, right? Um, which is Congress, right? Um, I mean, maybe not this particular Congress, but this is an issue that if, if this is an issue that matters to people, right, since Gorsuch's philosophy is textual in his reading of death penalty, if people get Congress to repeal the previous statute or pass a new law about this issue, Gorsuch may be inclined to switch his stance. So let me let me ask you about this, because isn't death penalty uh, decided differently or settled differently in different states? I mean, the laws around it are different from one state to the next or even whether it's legal at all, right? Right, that that is true, right? Um, but the AEDPA affects what's called federal habeas, right? And um, yeah, I've been throwing around this word habeas, habeas um, coming from habeas corpus, which is a fancy Latin term. Um, in this context, basically describes the process by which someone who has been convicted in state court can try to seek relief in federal court, right? Okay. So this is a time where the prisoner can bring up amongst a lot of other things, um, you know, all kinds of misconduct that happened during the trial, like juror misconduct, ineffective counsel, right, um, and things like that. So given the AEDPA, however, this process is a lot more difficult, and Gorsuch is inclined to agree with the the uh, new level of difficulty set by the AEDPA. Gotcha. So definitely a concern there. Um, let's move on to unenumerated rights. Um, so again, without getting too far into the weeds here, Gorsuch has expressed a reluctance to protect unenumerated rights, which the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment was intended to protect, such as the right to economic liberty, despite clear historical evidence that these rights were intended to be protected by this clause. As Clarence Thomas has stated, the mere fact that the clause does not explicitly, expressly list the rights it protects does not render it incapable of principal judicial application. I mean, that being said, right, there's a long legal tradition behind tearing apart the privileges and immunities clause, Sadly, which, is, yes. which is a real, real pity yeah. um, in, in legal jurisprudence. But, <laughs> um, you know, we don't want to get too into depth in that in that aspect. Um, you know, if you're interested, you, you can read everything about the slaughterhouse cases and all the jurisprudence that followed that. But even Scalia, uh, in his faint-hearted originalism, as it's called, for instance, didn't support the privileges and immunities clause. He felt that it was too set in stone um for for it to matter right and clarence thomas is the only judge who does so gorsuch was not exactly going to be a game game changer here anyway but still you know it's but i mean going off of this fact that he's not supporting unenumerated rights right we could kind of make this speculation now this this next part is going to be speculation uh uh, on his stance on on things like privacy right um, so if Gorsuch takes the wrong side of the privacy debate, right, there could be a lot of issues at stake when it comes down to things like surveillance, right? Now, privacy is something that is um, is not in the, the Constitution, per se, but there has been a lot of jurisprudence that's kind of said that, well, we have this right to privacy, but it exists in... Um, what's officially called the penumbra of the law, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it basically says that you know people have the right to privacy. It's just not clearly stated, but there's like you know little bits and pieces you could see in the Constitution, right? Right. But how much just do you think that this actually matters in the debate on Gorsuch, right? Well, I I think this could end up defining Gorsuch for a lot of liberty-minded Americans. I mean, I think a lot of us, if anything, the issue we care most about is is our privacy. And um, if there's a good chance that within the next 
you know, decade or so, we're going to have a challenge to the, the, the Clayman case, which was the case that banned government mass collection of cell phone metadata. Um, and if that comes up and Gorsuch is on the wrong side, um, that could definitely that could set his legacy amongst more uh, liberty minded folks. I think that's true. Um, and I think you know, privacy is a huge issue and surveillance is never really any, uh, it's never been popular amongst anyone who is liberty minded for the most part. Yeah. Um, but, uh, once again, you know, this, this pri- whole privacy issue where we're kind of speculating here. Yeah. Right? We don't know um, what he we would don't actually know exactly do. Yeah. what he would actually do. And I don't think that we should necessarily use it to fuel the debate on Gorsuch, but it is kind of hinted at because he doesn't really uh, favor unenumerated rights. And I think that's something to keep watch for mm. um, and you know, really hold him accountable for. Right. So another thing that we don't know exactly what he would do um, is his stance on federalism. So Gorsuch has stated that federal judges should only strike down laws in, quote, extraordinary circumstances, which seems to indicate that he will be reluctant to strike down laws that are not blatantly, obviously unconstitutional. So that seems like it conflicts with his his position on Chevron deference, right? I mean, he's willing to um, make uh, regulators stick to what the what their original purpose is, but why would he not be willing to strike down unconstitutional laws? I mean, this is a little bit of a head scratcher, right? Um, <laughs> and, you know, this, uh, the things that, that are said here, um, some of it come from his speech, mostly, um, that he, he gave when, when uh, Trump, uh, Trump you know, nominated him for, uh, as, as the Supreme Court nominee. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, does, it does seem very, very concerning to me, right? Um, because... We're we want Gorsuch to strike down the laws that are clearly unconstitutional, right? But yes. um, it's not just the ones that are blatantly, obviously co- unconstitutional. It's literally anything that is unconstitutional. We want Gorsuch to be able to protect and defend the Constitution as a Supreme Court justice, right? Right, and yeah, I mean, I I, I guess that it comes into him viewing a difference between ruling on the constitution itself and ruling on just pieces of legislation that were written by congress but but yeah i i think this is definitely a concern and i mean hopefully he draws a line between kind of congress uh, the things that are enumerated in congress because congress does have you know enumerated uh, powers to to write laws right um and perhaps that's what he means by he he only strikes down laws in extraordinary circumstances um you know perhaps it's it's congressional laws and not necessarily you know the laws that come through regulatory agencies maybe is how he how he justifies this in his mind but it really is boggling but that's that's a concern too i mean i think especially with things like the commerce clause um where we've seen a lot of liberals who are totally unwilling to say no to anything that is justified under the commerce clause i mean that's the kind of thing that scalia was really important in he he sort of created a a um a his or um What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like a history of jurisprudence? Yeah, right. A jurisprudence where um, where it was okay for Supreme Court justices to strike down laws that justified their constitutionality through the Commerce Clause. And if he's not willing to uphold that, he's kind of taking away from a, a crucial part of what Scalia was. I think that's that's really fair, and only time can really tell what uh, Gorsuch is going to do with this. Um I, I hope he does err on the side of really you know, defending the Constitution. Like, there is this concept of judicial activism and judicial restraint, right? I don't think 
you know, judges should be either, right? Yeah. I think judges should be sole defenders of the Constitution, and if they need to be active to defend the Constitution, they should be. If they need to be, um, you know, like restrained, uh, restrained to defend the Constitution, they should do that also, right? And I, I, I hope that's how Gorsuch, um, you know, views his his role as a Supreme Court justice. Well, he's uh, praised the jurisprudence of liberal justices during the New, New Deal era, um, which was a time where liberal just judges did almost nothing to limit federal power or make it, you know, fit inside the Constitution. Um, so if, if that's how he views. Uh, if he views his powers, that's that's definitely a concern. I mean, that especially is concerning for uh, for a lot of people who are Democrats, right? Who might be considering on on uh, you know giving Gorsuch a hearing and voting in Gorsuch because you know if he says this, it's like how willing is Gorsuch to to sacrifice his philosophy to uphold the things that Trump is going to do, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think only time can tell, but from the things that you know we've seen Gorsuch do so far, right? Um, it's it's pretty promising, at least, um, to say the least, that he might be somebody who could keep Trump in check rather than someone who enhances Trump's power. Right. And I think a lot of these things, we're just going to have to wait until the hearings, um, going to have to watch those with um, peeled eyes. And we will we will be back to you. Uh, we will get back to you on this when we when we really know more about what he thinks um, from the hearings. Right. But, all right. Well, that's that's all for this bonus episode. Um, we'll be coming. We'll be back this coming weekend to deliver your promised episode on immigration, where we'll really dig into the recent executive order on refugees and the immigration issue in general. Make sure to like us on Facebook in order to validate our existence, as well as share us wherever you can, so that your friends know that everything that went wrong over the past year was not your fault. See you in a week. Government is the problem.